And I was just watching it from afar. And I'm like, telling my wife, I'm like, I need to coach. Like, I, I, I need to do this. Like, I know how to do this. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of You Think, presented by Audiorama and Body Armor. Um, I told you guys I'd have an update on our Pop Warner City Championship run. We won our semifinal game against a really good team that we had to play. We beat them only by one score earlier in the year. We beat them uh, 13-6. And so we drew them in the semifinals. And uh, we played pretty well. We made a couple mistakes, had some penalties, but we won 21 nothing. So our defense is really playing well and it's a lot easier to win when nobody scores. So we have a really cool thing coming up. So check this out. So next Tuesday, so Tuesday, uh, I'm going to look up the date because I don't have that off the top of my head. Tuesday, November 1st, we are going to play the city championship, the Pop Warner city championship here in Charlotte at with a place called Memorial Stadium, which is like a renovated uptown, um, like in the city um, like old, like historic stadium that's been, that hosts like really cool high school showcase games. And the Panthers have like showcase events there and whatnot. So it's a really cool stadium night game under the lights. And we're going to play for the city championship. So pretty cool opportunity for these kids. We got a big week of work ahead of us to get ready, but we are super proud. We've come a long way with these kids, you know, considering we lost our first game of the season and weren't really sure how what our year was going to look like. The fact that we've won every game since and just continue to get better is, uh, is pretty cool. So we'll have an update for you guys, hopefully next week. Hopefully it's a, a good one, but either way, the fact that we made it to the championship and have a chance to play for it is pretty cool. So from there it goes to regionals and pot and it goes on and on, but our big focus is seeing if we can be the city champs and, uh, we'll have an update for you guys. We will see what happens. Uh, baseball has now ended. Both boys finished their final fall tournament. So that has come to a close. So they'll get a nice little break. Um, my daughter, I was proud of my daughter. I gotta be, I gotta brag about my daughter here for a second before we move on. She was asked to play one of the girls on her little 10 year old soccer team has an older sister who's 12. And I guess they were short a couple players at this, like, um, I don't want to call it games, but like this weekend, um, like mini games on Sunday where they get a bunch of girls together and they break them up into little fields and they play like round Robin little mini games or whatnot. And I guess they were short a couple girls. So the mom asked my wife if Talbot wanted to go and you know, we just presented it to her. We said, listen, you know, you're going to go there. You're not going to know anybody. They're going to be older than you, but it'd be a good opportunity. She immediately said, yes, she went there. You know, the girls were a little more advanced. They were bigger, older, whatever, but she competed really hard. We were super proud of her. It was really the first time she's taken like a competitive, like, yeah, I want to go play against, you know, maybe better girls. And, um, for that, we were super proud of her. That was a big, that was a big milestone. She's usually a little more apprehensive and, uh, and whatnot. So that was really cool. So we had a busy weekend, obviously, um, as all of us do in the fall playing sports, but, uh, things are going good. And hopefully next week we have a fun pop Warner, uh, update for everybody today. I'm really excited for our next guest. You know, when we, when we pick our guests, you know, we try to get people that have really unique and distinct, uh, views on, on, you know, youth sports. They've seen it as a player, as a parent, or as a former player, current, um, you know, leagues, coaches, academies, whatever. And I think today's guest, um, is Yogi Roth. Yogi is a PAC 12 network college football analyst, um, former football coach at USC. He's an Emmy award-winning filmmaker, scholar, New York times, best-selling author. Like he sees the youth sports and just sports in general. He has seen it from so many different perspectives. 
that we just thought like what better perspective to get than than Yogi. So he was super cool. Come talking to us about his time with Lead Eleven, his time working at USC with Pete Carroll. Um, you know, some of the books and the documentaries and the films he's made his time as a player growing up in Pennsylvania, just a really interesting guy. Um, somebody really dialed in, has a great outlook on sports and, and the way we should approach it with young kids. So I'm really thankful that Yogi took some time to, to share a lot of those unique insights uh, with us here on you think. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. Thanks as always to our sponsor, body armor, body armor, not only fuels this show, but they fuel my, all my crazy youth sports teams that we work with. Um, listen, there's, there's a lot of choices for sideline drinks. Um, but from the very beginning, as we've told you guys, our family's favorite is body armor. We love the orange mango, strawberry, banana. Um, when we go to the gas stations, we go to the stores on our way to the ball fields, we go to our way to the gym or whatever it is. It's all the kids want. And, uh, it's just, we have always gravitated towards it. And now the fact that they're a part of you think, and part of our journey here, um, on this show is, is super cool. Body armor is made with coconut water, B vitamins, and no artificial sweeteners. And for more information, you can go to drinkbodyarmor.com. Yogi, thanks so much for joining us here on You Think. Yeah, man. Well, you can put in a struggling youth coach. And that's why oh. I subscribe to your show, bro. So I, I'm all in on you and Gervais are like in between my ears very regularly. So well, I go. appreciate it. Tell me, vent. This is your this is your moment. What? Why are you a struggling youth coach? How old? What are you doing? Give it to me. Uh, so we got a seven and a two-year-old. And to me, like I, I never wanted to coach, right? Like even prior to hearing that first episode you had with Mike, I was like, I'm not going to coach. I'm going to observe. And then when our seven-year-old was five, I think we started Little League, like right as kind of coming out of the pandemic. Right. And, you know, it was, it was just chaos. And I was just watching it from afar. And I'm like, telling my wife, I'm like, I need to coach. Like, I, I I need to do this. Like, I know how to do this. And uh, anyway, then I I threw myself into it and had an absolute blast a year ago. And then now we're in like the fall ball and the where, why I'm struggling is because I can't coach because I'm calling games. Like I leave on Thursdays and I'm envious of like, you know, you got a Sunday game. So maybe you can still get like a Tuesday, Thursday practice in or something. I can't do it. So, um, I'm struggling in that regard probably of, you know, am I hands on enough? No. Cause I'm not even there for practice. Like, it's just kind of hard with juggling all those things. And you're trying to make sure you're pouring in the values of team, even though you're not around the team. And, and then you see game day and like, you can't, I'm not going to be the guy that just shows up on game day. And coaches all day. We got a great staff and a great coach. So that's the part where I'm like, I want to step back and I want to be all in. And I'm probably in like a really bad gray area. It, it's so funny. There's every season. It's kind of like the the running joke around our house. Like every season, I'm like, you know what? Next season, whether it's winter basketball or spring, whatever it is, I'm like, I'm gonna just be a dad. And it lasts like two weeks, and somehow I get I'm back out there, and it, you know, and and I'm fortunate. The kids when I'm not coaching their team they have good coaches and they do a great job, but when they're young and you know, like you're saying, they're, they're playing, you know, five, seven year old, you know, T-ball or machine pitch or kid coach pitch, whatever it is, baseball, whatever. And you see chaos going on and you see your kid, like if you're going to be there and take a couple hours out of your week to practice, and then you see him at practice, not getting anything done. It's like, all right, I'm getting up out of my chair and I'm going out there and we're going to at least get organized and make use of this time. The, the early age sports, it's hard not to get involved because most of it is just an absolute circus. Yeah. Yeah. You're, I you're get right. It. I mean, I get it. I, man. I, I just go back to like the, 
the thing that I'm obsessed with, which I'm sure you've talked a lot about, is like the idea of play therapy. So for you and I, when we were growing up, like, you know, I, fifth grade Terrace Steele dumped me and I just dealt with it by playing basketball for five hours, right? Like <laughs> I could remember it vividly as it happened, right? Same thing, like as I went through my entire athletic life, even now, I'll shoot hoops to process whatever I'm dealing with. So I want to make sure that like our kids have that as a way to process, whether it's their day and their teacher's too strict, or they had a tough time in their after school program, or their life is amazing. Like that's what I want the play to be. And, and I hope to continue to instill that. I think that is like by far like the number one thing that at least a seven-year-old should be having is like, yeah, just keep playing, bro. Just keep playing and playing and playing and work through whatever it is. And you come out and you had a good time and you want to come back the next day. And, and that's like, literally, I, I talked to Zane as is, is our son's uh, name, our oldest son, his coach is great. And I'm always like, let's just make sure all the kids want to come back. And they do. And, and credit to him for that. Yeah, but it's interesting. And I want to start right there. You know, one of the many you know, ways I, I introduced you at the top of the show, you've accomplished and, and done a lot of things. I want to start with your work as an author. You, you've recently wrote a book that's along the lines of what you just said. It's called Finding Free Fun. You base it on your own childhood with your father growing up and your, you know, your approach to athletics. Just take us back a little bit to your youth sports experience. You know, what was that like growing up before you went on to play in college at Pitt? Just what was that approach? How did your family approach it? And and that book, Finding Free Fun, like just explain a little bit more about your approach. Yeah, sports for me were were everything. Like like a lot of your listeners, I'm sure. Uh, I grew up in a tiny town of 2,500 people with no stoplights. Nothing existed other than really high school football. Mom was a refugee from the Middle East. Our dad was like a really talented high school football player, but never pushed anything on us, right? Taught me how to tackle, which was now completely illegal in terms of how to tackle. Yes. Um, oh. We know that, right? And yes. we just I just kind of threw myself into it. And it became, you know, how I processed everything. I became obsessed with it. It was just everything for me. And I was that kid up at five in the morning with his strength shoes on, jumping over garbage cans, you know, dreaming of playing in front of 100,000 people at Pitt. Um, that was just what it was. But what was interesting, and, and I remember it so vividly, and I carry this with me now, is I was a freshman in high school starting varsity, which, you know, in the middle of Pennsylvania, that was cool. And I was getting my haircut one day and the barber goes, hey, did your dad ever tell you about when he started as a freshman? Yeah, he beat out this captain who ended up going to Syracuse and he didn't. And it stuck with me because my dad never was like, hey, this is who I was. Try to live up to it. He never said that specifically. He never even lived that through his actions. And it, it meant a lot to me. We're like now, like with my kids, like, that they don't know that dad played. Like I have one photo of myself playing in my entire office and it's not making a play against your Miami Hurricanes in 2002 <laughs> to remind myself it's about the process and not the outcome. Uh, but that's it. And, and that to me was like really paramount because I never felt like I had to do anything. Like it was all want to. And even walking on, I walked on at Pitt before getting a scholarship and even my parents were like, you sure about this? Like, I don't know if you're good enough to go do that. <laughs> So I kind of was living in my own bubble as an athlete, but my little town probably cultivated a lot of that. Yeah. And so much of it, it's so fitting because so much of what we talk about here with, with a lot of our guests is that approach and that balance between living the kid's dream and living through the parent's dream. Right. And, and oftentimes with sons, it's the dad and, and whatnot, you know, it's something that we live here living in Charlotte, right. We're obviously where I played the bulk of my career and, and whatnot. I try to explain to all three of my kids, I have two boys and a, and a daughter. I try to explain to them, like, you don't owe this to anyone else. You don't owe it because I played. You don't have to play football because I played. You don't have to play sports. 
But if you're going to do it, you need to drive it. And this needs to be something if we pour a lot of time and energy and resources into it's at your, it's at your, you know, you're the one pushing it. You're, we're not dragging you to practice. We're not dragging. So go back to those days. You mentioned your dad. He wasn't, you know, pushing this on you. Didn't even really tell you a lot about his high school career. Just like, where do you think that's something that kids can just internally, like that internal motivation? Is it something you're born with? Was that something you think you, you cultivated from your upbringing, from where you grew up? Like, how do we get kids to be self-starters and not just have to be at the mercy of their parents, kicking them in the ass and making them get out the door to go practice, go work out. Like, how do we figure that part out as, as adults? Yeah. There's a guy that you, you might've ran into in your time. His name's Ken Black. He was a creative director at Nike and, and he gave me this uh, beautiful example of being a parent. He said, when you when your kids show interest in something, back the dump truck up and just pour it all on them and, and see how they handle it. Like give them the experiences, like throw them into it. And if they want more, okay, then you have something. And if not, okay, go find something else. And, and I've leaned into that to a large degree as a father. And then I look back on my dad and you asked about finding free fun. We didn't have a ton of money growing up. Like I referenced my mom, like her, both of her parents were Holocaust survivors. And I can remember being my son's age, sitting across the table like this, drinking like a ginger ale and a teal glass. And my grandfather tell me how he was shot eight times in his upper left shoulder. And he played dead for two days and a woman like brought him back. I can remember my mom's mom telling me how like she was in sixth grade walking home from school and her teacher stopped her and said, you can't go home because your family was just murder. They were just axed to death. And she went on the run from them. I say those two stories because when I was told those at like your boy's age, your oldest, maybe I was like, oh, I got something in me. Like I can fight. And that became like the story that I continue to tell myself is like, okay, like you don't have to offer me a scholarship, but you have no idea what's coming. Like same thing in high school or Pop Warner or wherever it was. So I think there's something to learning like where you come from, like what you're about, like what your family's about, like these traits that you know you have. Like my wife's an immigrant. Like we tell our oldest son like all the time, like, dude, like you know how to drop into different environments. Like this is what you do. Like this is no problem. Like, and when it's hard, it's comfortable. And I, I think it's important to kind of have the balance and not put it all on them. Like, but for me, like I leaned into that so hard. And then for, for my father, the way he dealt with it was, let's just go have some fun. And we didn't have a lot of money. So let's, let's go run outside. Let's go for a hike. Let's play catch. Like on the East coast, as you know, you'd say, let's have a catch. And, and that became a rallying cry for me as a kid. And now as an adult where we live in this world where kids have seemingly everything, I'm like, oh no, like it's going to be about the free fun in this house. So we'll drop in surfing out here on the West coast, hiking, having a catch, playing hoop, whatever. And it became such a big part of our life, especially in 2020, that I told myself, I'm not going to sit here and complain that we can't do anything. Like, hey, Zane, let's create a book. And that's what we did. And that's what recently came out. I, I missed some of those 2020 days, man. I'll tell you, we, we did more stuff as a family. There was no pressure to go to team practice, workout. It was ride bikes, play catch, go to the park, get chased off the local municipal park because they were all closed. <laughs> I, to your point, I, I, I miss those days. Take me, take me back. So you go and you walk on a pit, you eventually earn a scholarship. Larry Fitzgerald is your roommate. We're going to get to that in a second. I'm, I'm assuming before you went to walk on at Pitt, you had the opportunity probably to go other places that maybe people thought were more in line, you know, whether it was on scholarship or no, you won't play at Pitt. You're going to have to wait longer, but just in just talking to you now for a couple minutes, like you can just, it makes sense that you chose to go be a walk on and earn your scholarship, right? It kind of fits with everything you're saying. 
take us back to that process in the day of today where everything's about, you know, elite academies and how many stars and I want to play as a true freshman. The mindset you had as a high school kid to say, no, I'm going to go earn my dream, even if it's I don't start out maybe as a scholarship player like everybody else. If I get an opportunity, I'll make the most of it. Yeah, it was really crystallized to me. I was going to go to Ithaca or Delaware. And my whole life, I only wanted to go to Notre Dame. So I can remember being in the car with my dad. And this I tell parents this all the time. And if you're a parent of like a high school junior, do this. And I, I bet your dad did this with you. When you're taking that trip to go visit schools and camps, I was on my way to Notre Dame. The conversations I had with my dad were just fascinating. And we hit every school along the way. So you go Penn State, Pitt, Akron, Kent State. Like you just kind of make your way all the way out to South Bend, Indiana. And we get there and Urban Meyer is the receiver coach and Bob Davies the head coach. And I've told Coach Davey this story many times. He could care less, but it's a fun story. And I roll out there and they're going to offer one wide out. And it's me and Ronnie Rodimer. Ronnie Rodimer is 6'3", probably 215 as a high school junior out of West Virginia. Knowing what I know now, like it's a no-brainer who you're going <laughs> to offer. But I remember being at that camp and I would rush to the front of every line and Urban Meyer would put Ronnie Rodermeyer ahead of me. And then I'd rush to the next drill and I'd go to the first in line and they'd put Ronnie Rodermeyer ahead of me. And, and anyway, the camp ended. They offered, of course, 6'3", 215-pound, beautiful-looking wide receiver. That day, as I was driving home, I was like, I'm going to go to whoever plays Notre Dame. And Pitt was the only place that allowed me a preferred walk-on. And when I evaluated the situation, I said, well, the receiver coach at the time, his name was J.D. Brookhart. He was a former walk-on wide receiver at Colorado State. I know he'll give me a chance. And all I've ever asked for in life, even in broadcasting, I've said the same thing, like, just give me a chance to call the top game on the West Coast. Cool. I got a chance, and now I'm competing to hang on to that every week. Like, I love that opportunity. Same thing when I was playing. Like, just give me a chance. And when I showed up at Pitt, um, it was very vivid in my mind of, like, I had to go because I couldn't imagine turning on Thursday night football and seeing somebody else play on ESPN that wasn't a team that I was on. So I went there. And from day one, my goal was don't play a rep on scout team and turn one rep in practice to two. And honestly, like one of the greatest accomplishments of my playing career personally is that I never played a snap on scout team in four years. You know, and wow. one rep turned into two, turned into three. And my two roommates were two Blitnikoff winners, Antonio Bryant, Larry Fitz. You know, Andy Lee was one of my roommates who you might have played with in yeah, Carolina. Absolutely. You know? And it, it was just something that I, I I really believe this. I believe it's much more of a challenge to earn a scholarship in college than it is in high school. And and I'm so glad I had the path. Um, I think there's things that I, I tell my old coaches now that I wish they did. Like I wish confidence and in instilling it was more paramount. Like the psychology is more paramount then than it compared to it is today. But overall, I walked on because I had to take a swing. I had to take a shot at it. And it's kind of how I've lived most of my life, I think. That's super powerful. And then you, and then you mentioned, you know, the dichotomy of your two roommates or the Blitnikoff winners. Talk a little bit about your time in college. Of course, everyone, you know, is aware of Larry Fitzgerald. He's gonna be a first ballot Hall of Famer. We've all, we all obviously saw his career. Just talk a little bit about that experience, you know, playing alongside him, you know, probably at the time, maybe a little different experiences. And then obviously as you earn your scholarship and, and move on, you know, move up the ranks, you know, from your early days, you know, just what did you learn from him? What did you see from him on a day-to-day -day basis? Not just necessarily what we saw on the field, but the fact that you guys lived together and you could kind of see him away from practice and away from the, the field. So I was a junior when he came in and he was supposed to come in the year before he ended up going to Valley Forge, one of the prep yep. schools, I think. Yep. Um, 
And then he comes in, and you could tell his ball skills were off the charts. But what I noticed, and it, and it showed up in game one. So the first game, I'm kind of like the big brother figure. And he wears a suit to the game because that's what's kind of our dress code. And after the game, you could put on like your, back in the day, like these warm-up suits. And he puts a suit on after the game. And I think we played like Miami of Ohio or like one of those like non-con games. And I said, hey, Fitz, like you don't have to put that on. You can wear your, you can wear your warm-up suit. And he goes, oh, no, no, Yogi. Like people are going to know what I'm about from jump. And I remember that conversation so vividly in Heinz Field in the locker room where I was like, this guy's already a pro. Uh, he knew exactly how to operate. And that was a small thing, but that's how he operated in terms of taking care of his body, showing up at the facility, living in the weight room, film room, jugs machine. Like everything was at the level that he saw Chris Carter, Randy Moss, Dante Culpepper. Like he was just exposed to probably like yourself, like your dad was a coach. You're exposed to so much so young that you maybe don't even realize it's in your DNA. And, and that was so evident for Larry. And it rubbed off on the entire program. Like everybody all of a sudden was in early, staying late, extra jugs, like whatever it was, we did it because he was setting the blueprint. That, that's so cool. I, I think it's important for everyone to understand. And there really is, and this is something we stress with, with the teams that we coach and, and with my own kids. Right now, me and my dad and, and a couple of buddies, we're coaching my son's 11U tackle football team, like real football, ta- you know, the whole thing. It's our, fir- it's my son's first year doing it. So it's our first year coaching it. Luke Keekley coaches with me. We're having a blast, but you know, the thing we tell them and we try to stress to the parents, there's no, like, there's no, it's too early. You're, you're, too, oh, you're too young. We have time. Like you can learn to do things the right way. You can learn how to practice. You can learn how to respond to coaching. You can learn how to deal with adversity at any age. So the thing we always say to our kids, yeah, you're in fifth and sixth grade and we understand there's going to be mistakes, but why should we not hold you to the same standard your middle school coach is going to hold you to? And then the next level from that, your high school coach, like why wait till then? Let's learn the lessons now when the, you know, the consequences and, and whatnot are not as big of a deal. Like why wait until you're 16 and you make the varsity before you learn how to be coached before yeah, you learn how to bounce back from a bad game. Like those are all the lessons. So to hear Larry Fitzgerald as a, as a freshman in high college had it all figured out. Like he probably learned that as the ball boy, like you said, with, with Minnesota and those famous pictures of him, he was a high school, middle school, high school kid learning how to act, learning how to be a professional. So that's something we always stress to all the kids we work with. Like, Learn it now, like learn it now. So you don't have to learn it when it's too late. So I just think that, you know, it's something as simple as what you wear after the game. It's just a little example, but everything matters. And there's no, there's no, Hey, they're, they're too young. No, man. Kids are only held back in my opinion by the adults. Yeah. I've heard you say that before. I agree with that. And I think what, what I had imagined, it, how cool are these kids? They get you guys as their coaches. Um, I'm, well, I'm a sometimes big fan. they like it. Sometimes they yeah. might not like it. <laughs> Well, I'm a huge fan of like front loading, right? Like I tell, I talk to college coaches a lot about like front loading mental skills in recruiting, right? So you go to the University of Miami and, you know, now or back in the day, like the first thing they talked about, or even, you know, your previous school, like maybe it was, uh, you're going to play, maybe it was the NFL, maybe it was academics. Now it's NIL. Now it's marketing opportunities, right? Now it's transfer portal, like how we're going to grow the roster. And I'm like, no, no, we need to front load like mental skills. So people know that they can come in and write down the hall when it gets hard, because it will get hard. Like there's this place for you. So for you guys, and I hear like the youth sport dialogue around like, hey, can we front load joy? Can we front load play? Can we front load discipline? Can we front load traits? 
And then we're going to watch them play out. I think that is cool because you guys have lived all those traits. And most coaches, what I see is, you know, a lot of times we're doing it because nobody else is doing it, right, in youth sports. Or we're trying to figure it out online. And that's why, like, the only time I'll come down hard on coaches is when they're modeling behavior that is inappropriate because it's going to get replicated by youth coaches that are trying to figure it out. Yeah, so when that's we a good see point. A, you know, that's like we see point. a coach chew somebody's ass and light them up. Um, and all of a sudden, like it's a viral moment. I go back to when I coached at SC and Pete Carroll taught me, he goes, and you coach, you lived this with Pete in Seattle. He goes, Hey, yo, you got about 10 seconds. You got about 10 seconds. Your quarterback throws a pick. You got 10 seconds. How do you want to handle it? You can blame him. You say, man, how'd you miss that read? You should have seen that. We talked about in the meeting or you could absorb the blame and use it as a teaching opportunity. Hey man, let me teach you about like, I, I should have done that better. Hey, we're going to go back and look at that in the film. Like, don't worry about it. Or for a seven or a 10 year old. Hey man, how'd that feel? Didn't feel good. Okay, cool. Next time, I want you to take a huge breath before you hit. Let's try it real quick. Hey, three in, five out. Okay, cool. Go have fun. Like that to me is like where the magic lies in youth sports and is modeled all the way up. That's interesting. Well, it's a great segue. You can tell you're good at this. I want to talk a little bit. So we touched a little bit about, you know, the books you've written and obviously your playing career, but now I want to transition to that next stage. So after you get finished at Pitt, you mentioned it. You spent some time coaching at USC, working with the quarterbacks, with Pete Carroll. You know, what made you want to get into coaching when your playing days were over? Like, what was that experience like? You mentioned some of the things already that you've learned. Just talk a little bit about, you know, now you see it as a player. You look back on it now as a former player and whatnot. But now when you were in it as a coach, like what different perspective did you have at that time? Yeah, well, um, a, a guy that we both know, Brennan Carroll. Yeah, right, who, of course. Who sends his best to you, of course. Yeah, BC, best man he at my wedding. A, he is a classic. Classic. He is classic. Yeah. There yeah, is one, all... BC, there is one of them on the planet. <laughs> he's the only one. Yeah. He's Copy the only that. one. So Brennan, uh, he was a walk-on at Pitt when I got there. Okay. And he met me in the film room when I was there day one and became like my best friend. It kind of showed me the ropes. And when he finished playing, he moved out to LA because his dad, Pete, had gotten that C job a year or two prior. And he began began his coaching career. So I would come out on spring break and A, get exposed to like Manhattan Beach, California. And like, oh my God, like this is not exists. a bad place. I've never been like not west a bad of place. Pittsburgh, basically, you know? Yeah. And just my mind is blown. And I meet Sark and uh, Steve Sarkeesian, Lane Kiffin, Norm Chow, like Eddie Orger. Like, just the, like that staff was insane, let alone the teams. And I really got to know Pete. And I'll, I'll never forget this conversation. I was 19 and we're at a chart house, it's called, in Redondo Beach. And he goes, Yoga, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I just want to influence the world in a really cool way. And he goes, all right. So only worry about creating value. Don't worry about beating people and climbing up the ladder of success rung by rung. Just create value. And that just stuck with me. So fast forward, playing career is over. He calls me a couple of days after they beat Oklahoma in the natty. And he says, hey, why don't you come on out? I was doing sideline reporting for the Pittsburgh Panther radio network. And I said, sure, like I'll crawl there. And found my way out and ended up spending four years at USC on the staff. And when I talk about value, it's like my first job was stapling practice scripts. And Pete's whole thing was like, and you know this, either you're either competing or you're not. Like, period, end of story. Like, you are in a relentless pursuit of a competitive edge. 
And I just, I love that. I fell so in love with his approach and his tactics that like, I believe, Greg, to this day, I'm the best <laughs> stapler of practice grips in America because 22 a day were like perfect left corner, as good as you could find. But that was instilled by, again, front loading certain traits. And every year, because SC was launching coaches, I had a chance to leave and I something kept pulling me back. So I was like, I got to learn more from this guy. Like there's something special about what Coach Carroll was doing. And I was so lucky that in my 20s, he let me in. I'd go into his office late at night. He helped me. Obviously, I helped him uh, co-author his book. Like I got to really be a part of, I sat next to him in recruiting meetings, just understanding football, culture, organization. And then Steve, Steve Sarkeesian and Lane, they gave me the, you know, the degree in offensive football. You know, two years up in the booth, really seeing it differently, like you do now calling games. Two years calling, like being on the sideline and being that guy coaching the quarterbacks, relaying the plays. Like, I think those four years, while I never became a big name coach, it allows me to see the game with a ton of more detail, gravitas, and I think humanity in terms of the process. And man, I owe all that to Pete. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with sleeping in the office, talking to him, waking up early. Like the whole thing was just a magical experience for me. And one of the reasons I was so excited to to have you on the show is, you know, we, we talk to, you know, former players or former coaches or whatever, somewhere, you know, they have some unique perspective on the, you know, the kind of culture of youth sports and just sports in general. But when I, when I found out that we were going to have you on, what's so cool is like, we can, we can talk about it from so many different perspectives, right? So as a former player, you know, your, your work in the film, we'll get to some of your filmmaking and we touched a little bit about the authors and now as a coach, but then you kind of make a shift and you get into back serving the youth community. My, my younger brother at the time played for anyone who doesn't know the elite 11 is like the marquee top. It, it used to be you take 11, but now I guess they take, what is it? 20 something. And then they pick the 11. But anyway, that elite 11, you can see it on TV. It's on ESPN. It's a big deal. You were heavily involved with that elite 11. So you go from coaching at USC, you're spending all your time learning from Pete Carroll. But now again, you make a little bit of a career shift and you start now going back to service, you know, the youth community of these high school players. Talk a little bit about that for anyone who doesn't know about the elite 11 and your time working with them, because it's a pretty unique and special event. Yeah. Well, basically I, I did four years at SC and as I referenced, it became a launching pad, but I was also living in LA and I was like, this is pretty cool. Like I got no desire to live in Iowa, you know, <laughs> or wherever. So I was like, I'm going to pivot. And, and I'd always loved television and storytelling and living in LA, you kind of get thrown into that fire as well. And I had heard about this thing called the Elite 11. And the guy who ran it, his name is Andy Bark. Uh, I know your producer is a, a Cal grad, like he's a Cal grad. Uh, he's getting inducted into their hall of honor um, in the next couple of weeks. But Andy had created these set of camps starting in 1999. And he created one that was specialized in quarterbacks. So for those that follow like American Idol, think of American Idol for high school quarterbacks, where the staff at Elite 11 will go around to 10 to 15 locations. And at the time, we would throw free camps for anybody who wanted to compete to show that they could play. So you didn't have guys that were left kind of diamonds in the rough. Like if you can compete, if you could show it, here's a five-hour window, come on and throw down and let's go. And I got lucky and stumbled in and became the host of that show and one of the coaches. And it became this beautiful experience because I was so young. I was 26, 27 when I started. And I had this coaching experience. And we had guys like Matt Leiner, John David Booty, Mark Sanchez, Matt Barkley, like really talented five-star kids coming through. And everybody else came through. Jimmy Clausen, 
Tim Tebow, like everybody took a visit to USC. So I got to see all these guys early on. And then I drop into it, got to meet people like your younger brother and a litany of quarterbacks over the course of the last almost 15 years now. And man, it was beautiful to watch them walk into the door and they have this persona because they are you know, the world's best quarterback and they're there to compete among the alphas of alphas at that position. And all I found that everyone has wanted to do since 2009 when I started the Elite 11, man, was drop their shoulders and just be normal. And that's what we try to cultivate in the environment. And when Trent Dilfer came on as the head coach, I think we really cranked that up and created a place for guys to just talk about like what's going on in their life and give them tools and bring in guys like Dr. Michael Gervais or different speakers to talk about manhood like Alexis Jones and Brenda Tracy, like really powerful things beyond the X's and O's. And that kind of became my role of like, you know, Trent is going to kill it on the QB thing. And I'm going to be that other role. I really get to know the personalities of the players, pull their stories out, give them some tools on how to share those stories and pour into them with every resource that we have. So, so you're traveling around the country. You guys are holding these camps. I remember when my brother went to the like regional camp that you try to get like your golden ticket. Is that what they used yeah. to call it? Or sure it is. It's like yeah. the Willy Wonka golden ticket. And, um, you know, I remember going to watch him. I can't remember exactly where he did. I want to say it was somewhere in North Jersey, but anyway, um, you're going around the country, you're watching all these high, obviously highly talented. Most of these kids are getting recruited. Like what was the quality that you guys saw that was pretty much a constant throughout all these kids? We know they can throw, they're big, they're fast, but like, was there like an inherent quality that they all shared? You know, we're talking kids that are in high school, but like when you, when you saw them, like what jumped out at you guys the most aside from the physical stuff? Well, that's a great question. I think, you know, my head goes to like 2010, seven on seven exploded in this country, specifically in the South. So everybody, it wasn't just like great athletes. They really were great passers. And then in 2012, you were like, oh, wow, these guys have been playing since they were in like fifth grade and they could read coverages and talk that way. So this is like your, your brother's class. Now you're, you're getting guys on the board and you're like, holy, like what? These dudes know everything. But I'll say the thing that still stands out to me today, and it's magnified even more this past year because of what's going on in the world of college, I honestly think it's insecurity. Because how can't you be at that age? You know, I can remember a guy named Shane Morris who came yeah. in in your brother's class yeah. who went to Michigan. And Shane it was the first real digital media quarterback. His avatar was he and Aaron Andrews because uh, she was doing sideline at Michigan basketball games. He was a big recruit. Uh, he was huge. And one day we have uh, one of the days of the finals and we're teaching a basic drive concept, right? And you're never supposed to throw the go route, right? You're never supposed to throw the go route. And he throws the go route and he completes it. The place goes crazy and everybody's writing about how great he is online. And practice ends. We go and watch the film. We're sitting with him and we're like, hey man, like you're never supposed to throw that or whatever. And he gets dinged and he, in the first initial rankings out of those 24 kids, he's not in the top 11. And he's so nervous once he finds that out because he goes, they're going to they're gonna kill me online. They're going to kill me on social media. And he was living these, this duality of life, which you've seen a ton. I see it yeah. all the time in, in recruiting, especially for young college players, of external, you are elite. Internal, you know when you turned on that film, like you made the wrong read. You know you're not one of the top 11 guys. How do you process that? So that is really the thing that I have found. And, and I really believe this, that the environment we've cultivated is where one will recreate these rooms where guys can walk in and it could be one-on-one -on -one with me or it could be Trent or Brian Stump or different guys on our staff and they can just kind of like let go. And 
I bet 75% of them break down in tears when they get in that moment because there's so much building and they don't really have the tools, as I said, front load earlier, the tools to really manage it. I, and I, I want to stay there for a second because I think that's, it's such an important conversation. And, and again, we see it as young as my kids. My oldest is 11, so he's in fifth grade. And, you know, while be it, they're not on Twitter and Instagram, but they have TikTok and they see videos and they know every 13U All-American at the perfect game tournament. Like they know all these kids from around the country. And sometimes like, how do you know him? Oh, dad, I follow him on TikTok or whatever. How do we teach our young kids the insecurities of social media that you just described so well is real, right? Like that is real. It is getting younger and younger and younger. How do we equip kids to not care what the world thinks about them, right? It's kind of like counterintuitive. Everyone wants to be liked. Everyone wants to be a pleaser. Like it's kind of a human quality. How do we teach young kids, especially growing up in youth sports, how do we teach them whose opinion matters and whose opinion doesn't matter? Yeah, it's a really hard, it's a really challenging duality. So let me, let's yeah. paint a picture. Um, let be a up and coming high school player, junior high, high school player. You know, you've got talent, right? You're one of the top guys or you're trying to become that. The world we live in now is you can be a business, like you can make real money on that. So if you sat in, in front of influencer or any of these like NIL companies, they'd say, grow your social, grow your social. Okay. So now I'm 15. Now I'm 12. Now I'm the parent of those individuals. I'm growing their social. I'm growing their social. Okay, cool. I get it. Cause you can make money off that. And I'm not here to like, I, I love NIL. I think it's a, it's a great thing in theory, but we have the other side of that thing too. Okay. I'm going to grow that social. Well, now all of a sudden, and I say this, this is real. Your team loses a game. A lot of times what gets sent is go kill yourself, right? Like that's just the truth. Every year in college football, it happens. And at times in big high school football, like these kids are feeling that as well. They're feeling this crazy amount of pressure. So I think you have to make a decision. Like, do you want to play in that world? And is it worth it? Right? I, I, had, I wrote a book called Five Star QB that uh, I asked parents to help me out. I asked Bryce Young's dad. I asked CJ Stroud's mom. And I asked Christian McCaffrey's mom, Lisa, who I know you had on your show. I said, give some advice to parents. And every time I've talked to them, whether it was on the record in the book or off the record, they come back to like, we know what the big business is. Right. So yeah, we want to grow our NIL deal, our marketing, our brand. But like, if we're trying to get to the NFL, like, that dwarfs anything there. So to the parents, and I've talked to a lot of parents doing this book, man, that are like your age with your age kids. And they're like, my kid's, you know, he's top 50 kid in California as a quarterback. And I'm like, well, who said that? And then I go to the <laughs> website and you pay 350 bucks of to get course. evaluated. Of and course. It, so I, I think it starts there. I really think it starts there of like, you know, what do we want to do? Like, let's make sure we're on the same page of how we want to grow this thing. Because our our child, our son or daughter, they're going to associate value to that, right? Like, I'm a pleaser. I don't know if you are. Like, it's hard to not be, especially in this era that we live in, especially for our kids. Like, I hear my seven-year-old talk about, like, subscribers. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And then he tells me, he goes, well, yeah, it's when people like what you do, Dad. And it's really a fascinating thing. So I'd start there. And then after that, like, you have to really, I think, set parameters and boundaries. You know, here, here's my last story for you. I talked to one of the top quarterbacks in the country this year who reportedly has offered a bunch of money to go to a college. You can probably figure out who I'm talking about. And I asked him, I said, how are you going to deal with all this attention? Because it was hard for him. And he goes, well, I'm just going to turn my phone off. And I said, hey, man, that'll work for a little bit, but you got to have real traits. No doubt. So Absolutely. I, 
the best guys I've met in high school now, to, to really answer your question, the best guys I met in high school are guys that are subscribing to high performance psychology or mental skills or therapy now, like ninth grade, 10th grade, and looking at it as a training tool, not as uh, God forbid weakness, which I think yeah. is still somewhat of the stigma. It's so fitting. It's so funny you say that. I, I have this philosophy and I've said this on the show many times. I want, when I say my kids now, I'm talking about just like my personal kids. I'm not going to tell anybody else how to raise their own, but I want my kids now in you know fourth and fifth grade, I want them to experience failure, disappointment, setback, and have to deal with those emotions. Get, get coached hard and lose your emotions. Cost your team the game. Hopefully not, but it's going to happen, right? I'd rather them do that at 10 and 11 than the first time they experience setback and, and disappointment to be at 17 when they're a senior in high school, right? The first time you get on the mound and you, you walk your first three batters and then the guy hits a gapper and you're down and you're standing on the mound, but your whole life we've controlled everything you've done. You've always been the best kid. You've always been on a team you could excel at. You've never had to work for anything. Everyone's always told you how good you are. And then all of a sudden you enter the real world in high school and you don't know how to deal with it. So you're, to your point about front-loading these traits, the earlier we can teach these kids, you're going to fail. You're going to have bad games. You're going to have setbacks. Now what? Like, now what are you going to do? But let's teach them when they're 11 because they probably won't get it right. But maybe by the time they're 16, 18, and now the you know, reality is kicking in a little bit, maybe they're more equipped now because they say, oh, okay, I've been here before. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm used to being uncomfortable. Yeah, well, I, I, I'll share another quick story, and I, and I, I, I don't want to share the player's name, but we were at Nike's campus for the Elite Eleven one year, and we had one of the top quarterbacks in America. He had been named a five-star quarterback in eighth grade. He was a rock star his whole high school career. He never lost a seven-on-seven -seven game. We're in seven-on-seven. -seven. They lose the game. Again, we're on Nike's campus. Remember that note. We're on Nike's campus. He throws a couple picks. They lose the game. His parents come over to me and say, you know, you need to get rid of those two coaches calling the game. And I said, oh, because, you know, my role at Elite 11 is also sometimes I'll, I'll direct the film. So yeah, I'm like course. telling cameras where to go. And I'm like, okay, guys, kick back because we do not want to put this on TV. Like I'm not a fan of exposing yeah. these young men. And I go over to him and I say, okay, cameras leave. And I hear his parents. They're like, you need to get rid of those coaches. They're absolutely terrible. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, have you always giving your kid an out. The kid leaves, goes inside the locker room on Nike's campus, comes out wearing a different brand's gear. A different brand's gear wow. after given bags and bags and bags of gear of Nike gear. Wow. And I pulled him aside and I said, hey man, like, I know you're frustrated and you might not know how to deal with this, but the way you're dealing with it is not the way. This is not the way. And I say that because here he is at 17, the world's greatest quarterback since he was in eighth grade. And the people that have been around him the most, the ones as you referenced, cultivating that environment, I don't know if they did that. I'm not here to judge them, but I don't know if they did that in terms of what you referenced when he was 10, 11, 12. Because now that playing career is over and I'm worried about him. Yeah. Because now here comes wow. real failure. Because now you're just deemed as a failure. Like I look at the cover and I'm not pumping this, but I look at the cover of this five-star book, 90% of these guys aren't playing. Majority of them look at their careers and are still identified as a failure because they didn't live up to other people's expectations. And I think parents need to get on that shit, get on that early in their lives. Other people's expectations. 
And I think that's the key. And it goes back to the social media thing. There's a lot of layers to that conversation, but the better we can teach kids whose opinions matter. Number one, yourself. What are your own goals and aspirations and how do you view your identity within your sport, within your skill, with whatever it is? That's number one. The folks around you, their opinions matter. Those are the people that you have to be willing to hear the hard truths. I say that to my, my oldest son who's playing tackle football now, you know, wants to be competitive and he says, you know, I want to play and I want to play. And I always say to him, I say, you say you want to play, but then when you, when you don't do things a certain way and I tell you the truth, you got to be able to deal with it because I'm not going to sit here and tell you as your dad that everything you do is great. When you do it great, I'll tell you. But if you're messing up and you're costing your team or you're making mistakes or you're not listening to your coach and whatever it is, I'm going to tell you. And you might not like it and it might hurt your feelings and you might think I'm being mean, but you need someone in your life to tell you the truth. We all do. I do. You, we all do. The problem nowadays, what I see coaching the youth scene, five, six days a week, various different sports, different types of kids. Everyone is very hesitant to tell kids the truth these days because they're so worried about hurting people's feelings. And you can be respectful and tell the truth and give positive criticism and give realistic criticism without crushing a kid, right? Sometimes that's the balance that we all could do a better job at. I'm the first to admit. But the notion that we can't tell kids the truth these days is what creates those stories like you just described, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Pete used to always say, I don't know if he, he's he probably sold this to his staff in Seattle. He'd always say, your job is to learn the learner, right? So your son might be great at just direct feedback. My son might be great at like, hey, direct feedback, but off to the side because he doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of his friends. Another one might need that, right? And I think we've all been on teams where we're like, well, wow, that guy gets motivated because he's been yelled at his whole life. Like you got to come down hard on him on the field. And that's what makes him tick. And, and I think in youth sports, it's a really, it's hard to do that. But I think like early on in practice, you know, um, the first few minutes in practice, I, I'm a big fan of coaches kind of mingling, getting to know guys a little bit. Hey man, how was your day today? Like just one little thing, one little string to pull on to find out like how they learn. Because they, they, I don't know if you felt it, but you know, our son, the biggest reason I wrote Finding Free Fun was because he was struggling how to read. And I'm like, I gotta make this enjoyable, man. Like, it is not good when his teacher would say, if they said like, go ahead and read. Or, hey, like, let's make it really anxious right now and I'm gonna sit with you. Like, we had to make it enjoyable. Like, hey, let's, let's go for a walk today and look at the signs. What's that sign say? Uh, st- uh, uh stop. Okay, sweet. What color is that? A uh, red light. How do you spell red? Uh, you know, and, and that to me was like, really critical in his evolution. Like I could still get chills now. Like, as I hear him read at night, I'm like, oh, cool. Like we had to have a different approach. And I think the same thing exists in youth sports, let alone the professional sports. It's, I think that's really well said. And again, I'm the first to admit, I'm very open on this show. At times I could do better at it, right? Like I was always, my dad was a bit, he was old school, 30 year football coach, hard driver, hard driver, high expectations, nothing was ever good enough. And that's why his teams won a lot. And that's why he was never content. Nothing was ever good. There was always better inside. You could always improve. You could always be a better player. And he got the best. He maximized every kid who ever coached him, but his style is not, his style was not for everyone. It was, I personally obviously took to it and it helped me. I carry a lot of that same, like that drive, that fight. Like I'll never, you know, anyway, 
But at times you have to know your audience, I guess, is my point to your point about learning your learner. And, and there's times where I have to take a step back and say, okay, this might work for him, but it might not work for her or, you know, or whatever the case may be. So I think that's, I think that's a really, I think that's a really good point that we all can learn from, right. As people that associate coaching youth kid, uh, youth sports and working with young kids. I got one last topic I want to talk to you about. I, I got think a question for you too. Yeah, please go ahead. So you've had a lot of powerful coaches in your career. Like how, how do you curate like your coaching approach based on your experiences or as default, like how I was coached by my dad, who was, I'm, I'm assuming the biggest influence in your life. Yeah. He was the biggest influence by far. Not even, not even close. I've been fortunate to have a lot of really good coaches who had a lot of different approaches. My style from an early age, I don't need someone to like false enthusiasm, false, false pump me up. Like that's not really my jam. Like I want to be held accountable. I want to be given freedom to do my thing. And this was something as I got older and whatnot, but I was fortunate. I had a lot of different styles. So I went from my dad who was very disciplined, accountability, hard driving, nothing's good enough. Then I went to college with Larry Coker, who was a lot more relaxed, right? He was a lot more father figure, not going to embarrass guys, not going to yell guys. But then in my tight end room, I had Mario Cristobal. So Mario Cristobal, now obviously the head coach of Miami, hard driving sucker now. He was, now he loved his players, but he was very intense, very demanding, very hard, but then also could turn it off and be like a fun guy. And we'd go out to dinner. So like he was that kind of guy. Then I got to the NFL, Lovey Smith, very calm, very quiet. Then Ron Rivera, kind of a mix of both ways. And then obviously Pete, just for that one year, and you described his style, you know it better than anybody. So like I could always fit in with really any style of coach. I didn't need to play for a guy who was going to kick me in the ass every play, but I also didn't need someone to just put his arm around and sing Kumbaya. Like I was good in any environment I had. So to answer your question, my approach is if I see a kid that needs a foot up his ass and needs to be, and needs to be held accountable and driven because that's the only way to keep them in line, I'll do it. But if I see a kid that maybe needs a different approach, because when you do jump them, they go into a shell and you actually make things worse. Though that's the part of it that I'm getting better at is saying, okay, just because it worked for me and just because it might work for one of my kids doesn't mean it works for my other kids or the other kids that I coach. I need to do a better job at saying, okay, this is how he responds to get the best out of this player. This is how he responds to get the best out of this player. Whatever part of the spectrum it's on, to me, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the development of the kid is the priority. Fix the mistake. Don't attack the kid, but attack the problem. Like, what are the problems? Why do you continue to make them? And let's address that. Like, yeah, how do you do? That's hard, though. It's hard. No, but it's hard. So here's a question, and this is self-serving, 100%. So like our son, I think I think he's a gifted athlete. He's kind of like my wife, like doesn't need to practice a lot and can just do stuff, but doesn't necessarily love it. Like he's not some of his friends are like, let me go to the cages every day after yeah. school. He wants to hang out. Like he wants to be with his buddies is why, at least now at seven is why he plays. So how do you coach, curious, you and your staff, like how do you approach that individual? So so I ha- I'll give you a personal the answer to that. Cause I have three kids. My oldest son is 11 plays tackle football, plays very competitive travel baseball. We fly all around the country and play in different games, but that's his personality. Like he wants to stand on the mound in the championship game 
and not all the games do great. He's not going to strike everybody out. He's had some games where he didn't make it out of the second inning and he got shelled because he played some really good team from Georgia or whatever. Like, but it's not going to crush him. Like he wants to be in those situations. He thrives on it. He's a little bit more wired like me, but you can, you, you can be firm with them and you can tell them when it's not right and be firm with them and hold them to a high standard. And after the initial being 11 and the emotions wear off, like he'll go to bed at night and be like, I'm going to be better tomorrow. Like I know the way I ended practice or I know why, you know, whatever happened after he processed, like I'll be better tomorrow. And you're like, good, like addressed. It's over. Let's worry about tomorrow. My younger son, who's 10, a lot more sensitive. If you jump him, he's done. Cry, like he might cry. He might go into a shell. He'll get very apprehensive and hesitant because he doesn't want to make a mistake and he's done. There's no bounce back. Like, but when he's in a great positive mindset and he's confident and he's going, he has some really good traits and some really good qualities. He's a big, strong kid and can do it. But he just wants to play with his friends. Like he's on the team because he loves the dugout. He's in the team because of the pizza parties, he'll do the baseball part and he likes it and he'll have success and, you know, kind of up and down, but he loves his buddies. He loves the car ride home. He wants to bring his friends home after practice to go have pizza, like loves the social component to it. And then my daughter is the best athlete of the three. If they went into a race on the playground, she'd win. She's tall. She can run. She can, I mean, but if it's not at her team practice, her little rec team practice or at her game on Saturday, she's not doing anything. And no matter how hard we push it, it's just not her deal. She's just, it's not her personality. So we just kind of let it be. So I have three kids on very different ends of this whole competitive spirit, which is a little hard for me because I'm like, everything in my life is life and death, you know? So it's like a little hard for me to take a step back and say, it's okay that they don't approach it that way. That's taken me a little time, but um, it's hard. It, you know, my, so to answer your question for your seven-year-old, like, my biggest way I approach my 10 year old, cause he's similar is like, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And when it's time to be serious, we're going to be serious. When it's time to have fun, we're going to have fun. And then once practice or the games are over, I want you to go have fun with your buddies. I want you guys to go run around. I want you to go be 10, but I need you for this fixed amount of time. We got to be in and we got to go. And if you're not willing to do that, we got to put you on a different team. Yeah. That's cool. That's, that's my approach, but it's hard. I, and when you have different kids in your house that have different approaches, none of this is easy. I have one last question for you and I'm going to let you go. You've been very generous um, with your time. An issue that I see in youth sports nowadays, and I think it's trickling to some of the poor quality we're seeing. So we'll just stick with football just because we're both football guys. We're seeing poor quality kind of creep into higher levels, right? We're seeing NFL footballs this year, specifically average right? We're seeing a lot of sloppiness. My belief is kids are so caught up in the competition, meaning the games, tournaments, the competitive nature of the games, and there's very little attention given to the development, right? Everything at the young age is about winning the tournament, but it's not, let's develop the kids. And then as a byproduct, we will win the tournament. Like how do we as a culture try to shift back where at the young age, we spend more time developing the individual with the traits, both mentally and physically to excel at their sport and let the winning come as a byproduct of doing things correctly. Cause in my mind right now it's flipped. If my team's losing, I just got to go get better players. Right. That's the yeah. coaching approach to youth sports nowadays. And as a 
result, we're not developing the kids that we have. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you two examples. So let's just look at the quarterback. So yeah. I just interviewed 50 plus five-star quarterbacks, asked them all about their lives. And what I really learned is that the guys that are offered really early, right, that it was eighth grade offer, seventh grade offer, ninth grade offer, man, they really struggled in the joy and development process because it became about the next offer and then the next offer and then the commitment and then bringing guys along with me. So I say to like, to, to the adults in the room, to the coaches, like, let's slow down that eighth grade offer. To the parents, like, you don't need to go to like every premier camp. I know you, you were asked that on one of your recent podcasts, like, should we go to all these camps? Like, you don't. Like, you need to hone in on, to your point, the development. So, so that's story one. I think story two, applicable to what you just asked, I really think it's about playing, not playing games. We, I think we live in a world now where, I mean, just pull like the 10 people you call or text most in your phone that have kids, and every weekend, what do they have? Games. Oh, oh trust game, me. Game, I, game, I game, game. You live it. And I think, we, I especially it. for, for I learned this from Mia Hamm, the all-everything soccer player. She was like, you know, a lot of times females are more susceptible to like ACL injuries um, because they're just playing games all the time. And then I can remember even uh, Jurgen Klinsmann. He was a former U.S. national coach. He used to hang out at SC when we were back in the day there. And he would say his son, who I think is on the national team, he would say, I want to play, you know, big time soccer. And he'd say, well, if you just keep playing games, you're never gonna. And his example was like, he would just kick the ball into like his garage door thousands of times. So to me, I think on the youth sports side of the coaching, I would be breaking down practice into moments of skill development that are fun and competitive. Right? How many times where there's like hitting the ball into the fence, uh, diving to try to turn a double play to make it enjoyable, right? Pull out the kickball every once in a while to like work on running the bases, like little things like that. But you're really developing like the Miyagi-esque skill development versus, hey, all right, let's line up. We're going to hit. We're going to play. Let's do another mock game. Hey, let's scrimmage today. Like there's time for that. But the best teams I've seen, even in practice, where there's Chip Kelly, Chip Kelly is one of the best I've been around in practice because he'll have periods where he'll yell in between periods, teach, and there's a teach period in between seven on seven and one on ones or nine on seven or whatever it may be. I think in the youth sports, having those little moments built in are paramount because if I get 10 at bats in practice, whatever, did I really get that much better with 10 swings? Give me a hundred swings in the corner with one coach. And that's where I think the coaching could come in and say, let's not just be like corralling our kids. Let's take them. Hey, we're going to do this here, this here, this here, and really work on that. And maybe you don't get to everything every day, but man, by the end of the season, the amount of reps, the intellect around the craft has incredibly increased versus let's get another mock game in. Yeah. And so true. I, what I've loved the, the experience I've taken from coaching football now for the first time at the youth age, we've done a lot of baseball. We've done a lot of basketball over the years. First time doing tackle football. It's the first time we practice more than we play. Yeah. We practice six, seven hours a week. We practice a lot and we play one game on Saturday mornings. And then the next week we're back to practice on Tuesday, Thursday, little walkthrough on some Fridays. We play one game on Saturday mornings. My son's baseball team this weekend We'll play six games. They'll <laughs> you know, play six for, games. Yeah, that's that's so now, true. Again, right? Isn't that football? Sport, yeah. Different sport, right? That that stays that rings true with football for eternity. 
But that's what I think is so cool for these young kids. Like our ability to coach our offensive and defensive linemen and our backs and our handoffs. We have so much time to coach the details and the, the, you know, the fundamentals because we're only preparing for one hour and a half game a weekend. Yeah. That's where so, Pete, I mean, you played for Pete. I don't know if you'd agree, but I felt like that's where he was really masterful of like making the littlest things feel like game day. Yeah. He, he, I, I've always said, you know, some of the, some of the Pete stuff was not really my cup of tea at the, again, I was late. I was older and later in my career, but I've said on record multiple times, his ability to run a team, attention, to detail, practice plan, reading the locker room, understanding personalities was as good as anybody I've ever been around. Yeah. He, he gave a great example. I remember when we were writing his book, this is 2008, 2009. And he said, when he got let go of the jets, he spent a year trying to kind of figure out where he was going to go next. And he was doing uh, youth camps for the NFL, NFL, whatever, whatever the NFL youth camp would play 60 or whatever it was at the time. Yeah. And he was driving through New York and he went to one community and it was relatively upscale. Um, and he went to practice and in the parking lot, he couldn't hear anything. Then he went to another community that probably like fiscally wasn't what, it, what the previous one was. And he was in the parking lot. All he heard was like sounds and noises and energy. And that's where it like kind of clicked for him of like, okay, for the youth sports specifically, like how can we curate energy? Now you can have energy when you're saying, Hey, step with your left foot first. You can have energy when you're saying like, Hey, come out of your break. And I, I've always felt like with youth, and this is just a limited experience, um, but if you can bring juice, if you can create an environment that is one, full of joy, and, and joy is competing, joy is practicing, joy is like doing things over and over to get them right. Like if you can create that spin on it as the voice, as the lead voice or one of the voices, then I just think you're going to have a much more enjoyable experience because you got to do the same things no matter what to continue to grow. You might as well do it with a ton of energy, man. I'll tell you, this could have been a four hour conversation. We've only scratched the surface. I think of some of the fun conversations. So we're going to have to have you back, but for the sake of time, Yogi Roth, I mean, we didn't even get into some of your films you've made some of your TV stuff, obviously now calling games pack 12. We got a lot to unpack. Hopefully we can have you back, but Yogi Roth, I can't thank you enough for, for coming and sharing some of your experiences, your insight, both personally and professionally on this crazy wild world of youth sports in America and uh, for joining us on another episode of you think. Yeah, man, it was a blast. You got to send me your address. I got to send you a copy of a uh, five-star QB. I think your, would love it. your boys will love it. Done. I'll, I'll, I'll follow up. I'll have, uh, I'll have it sent to you. I would love it. I appreciate it. Best of luck. And uh, hopefully we have you on here again soon. Done and done. Appreciate it, buddy. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Yogi Roth. Uh, you can hear Yogi right now calling games out for the Pac-12. Um, college football slate. Um, but again, I, I've, I have some of his books. I've seen some of his films. Obviously I'm familiar. He coached my younger brother at the elite 11 camp. So he, he's got a real, really interesting outlook and a really interesting life experience through the world of youth sports, both from his childhood growing up all the way till now he's kind of seen, seen the game from a lot of different angles. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So I appreciate Yogi. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation and got as much out of it as I did. And, uh, at this point, part of the show you know what's coming our favorite part we're going to bring in tasha tasha we have to start where we've started the last couple weeks syracuse orange i'm sorry i have to be i was man i thought you guys had it for anyone who doesn't know 
Tasha's dad is the head football coach at Syracuse. They've had an unbelievable year this year. Top 25, undefeated. They had a huge matchup against Clemson. Tell us what happened, Tasha. Huge big bummer. You know, I mean, we're in Death Valley. It's hard to win in Death Valley. What are they, 38 straight wins now? Yeah. Um, but we we had it. It was just the second half. We just we just didn't score. You know, that's what happens when you don't score the second when you don't, half. Yeah, they've done studies. <laughs> they've done studies, and the oh, teams gosh. who don't score, it's hard to win. It's something new they're seeing. Yeah, you know, but that's I'll, what I hear. <laughs> I know. But so who do you guys have left on the schedule? What are the big ones left on the slate? Uh, you know, we have Wake Forest. We have Notre that's Dame. That's a tough one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but this this next weekend we have Notre Dame at home. So that's you nice guys can at least. Them. You can beat yeah. them. Hopefully. We'll see. Right. We'll update well, everyone good, next week. Good luck to the Orange. <laughs> you think is a full Orange. We are full Syracuse Orange fans. We're pulling for you. Pulling for the fam. I hope you guys pull it out. Thanks. All right. Well, what do you got for us? What kind of audience questions? Let's hear from them. Yes. This one is from Kathleen from Instagram. She says, my five-year-old loves sports and is ultra competitive, but when he loses, he's unconsolable. He's just so upset. So basically she wants to know what parenting advice can you give her? Yeah. You know, I think part of that is just age, right? I think all five-year-olds, you know, you take their crayon and they cry. I, I think, I think young kids just don't know how to control their emotions. I mean, I still see some of our 10 year olds and 12 year olds that we coach who still struggle with setbacks and struggle with defeat and don't know how to handle it. So I, I don't think that's uncommon. I don't think you ever want to pull out the competitive spirit of a kid. I think the fact that he is competitive and the fact that he really wants to compete and he wants to win, I think is good. I think over time, as he learns to be a little more mature and he gets a better understanding and handling of his emotions and, and his behavior, I think you can obviously work on that and say, Hey, when you, we want you to be competitive, we, you know, show, you know, the old phrase, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. Like you don't want to teach your kids that losing is okay but you do want to teach your kids that when you lose your obligation is to act correctly. And you're, if no one's saying you can't be upset, you can't be mad, but you need to control your emotions. You need to act the right way and, and, and be able to handle adversity and handle defeat. And I, and we talk about that a lot of the show that one of the greatest parts about youth sports is teaching kids to deal with failure and to deal with setbacks and deal with disappointments because it's really a great way to learn those life lessons. So Kathleen, I encourage you keep them being competitive, let them keep playing, let them keep getting out of them and just continue to sprinkle it in. Like, Hey, I know you want to win. I know you care, but we, as we get older, we need to be a little more mature with how we handle these things. And I'm, and I'm sure it'll get better as he gets older. And, um, but I love it. I love the competitive spirit. Don't ever take that away from a kid because you can't coach it. Hmm. That's good. The next one's from Amy from Twitter. How is it seeing Christian McCaffrey in San Francisco for the first time? What advice did you give him after the trade? Yeah, it was really cool. On, on Thursday night, I was uh, I was laying in bed and I'd fallen asleep on the Thursday night game. And then they had the post game show on. So I kind of heard McCaffrey's name and I was half asleep and, um, you know, kind of woke up and looked at the screen, you know, Chris, breaking news, Christian McCaffrey traded. This was like midnight on, uh, on Thursday night, East coast time. So I texted McCaffrey and he was up and we kind of went back and forth a little bit. And then I was able to see him, um, out. I called the San Francisco, Kansas city game on Sunday out in, in Santa Clara. So it was just great to see him. He's fired up. I mean, obviously he loves Charlotte. He loved his time here, but I think new beginnings, I know firsthand sometimes new, sometimes new beginnings are the best thing that, that someone can get. And, uh, he's going to a good team. He's going to a coach that's really going to utilize his skill set and, and, and use him you know, for what he's good at. And, um, hopefully they can become a contender. You know, they, they, they got a good squad. They, you know, they came up a little short against, 
Kansas City, but they got a good team. We have them again this weekend. We're going to go see McCaffrey and the Niners this weekend play the Rams out in LA. So I'm happy for him. He's a great dude. He works his ass off. And uh, I think, I think this, I think that when it's all said and done, this can be a great thing for him. Nice. And then our last fan question is, I feel like work ethic is different than back in the day. How do you instill good work ethic in the teams that you coach? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a good question. I, I think, you know, the biggest thing that we try to make a connection point with the young kids too, is we need to make a connection between work ethic and the desired outcome, right? And, and what we always say is it's our job as coaches that when we're pushing these kids hard and we're making them work and we're making them really, I mean, we're really making them earn it and improve and hold them to high standards. We've got to make sure that we're doing it in a way that they see the growth and that they experience the development that they're seeking. And when we get to game day and we get to where it matters, they have success. They're a part of the team. They have a role. Again, not everybody's role. Not everyone's going to be the running back. Not everyone's going to score touchdowns. Not everyone's going to be the shortstop, but like feel like when you come into a game on this team, I've earned a role through my hard work and through my production in the games and in practice. So to me, like that's the connection point. If you just bring the kids in and you grind them into the dirt and you scream at them and you yell on them, but nobody's getting any better because you're not doing it in the right way. Nobody's improving. And then when they get into the games, they get rolled and they get beat and they get, you know, they're down on themselves and they're defeated. They come back to practice the next time and there's no connection. There's no, okay, I'm willing to do this because I'm getting the desired outcome in my development and my improvement. That to me is where a lot of coaches miss the boat, miss the boat. So something we try to do is we try to always evaluate after every single week, after every game and saying, is every kid on our team getting better? If mm. they are, then we continue to find ways along the lines of the way we've been operating because what we're doing works. If we're making this so hard and we're demanding and we're making these kids and practice is hard, but then they're never seeing the success in the games. We're going to turn these kids off. They're not going to want to come back, right? Because it's not worth it. Why, why am I going to get my ass ripped? And why am I going to get coached and pushed and held to a really crazy high standard? And then I go out and I can't play well. I stink. My team loses. I'm not good. I don't have a role. I that to me is our biggest emphasis. And as long as our kids are improving and as long as our kids are coming back better than when they left, to me, that's the, that's the sign of a really good team. And then how you put all those pieces together individually and make that a collective unit. Obviously that's the last piece of the puzzle. But to me, kids need to learn that the harder something is, it's for a reason. The easy things, you know, the, there's an old adage, right? The, the easy things, they're not worth it. The hard things are worth the hard work and the harder it is, the usually the more well worth it it is. And we think it's our job to kind of instill that, that life lesson into these young kids as early as we can. And that's what we're trying to do. That's right. Do the hard stuff. People do the hard stuff, do the hard stuff. Um, that's it for all the fan questions though. So keep sending them in at you think or at Greg Olson at TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. Awesome. And thank you so much, Tasha. Appreciate mm -hmm. it as always. And uh, thank you guys all for listening here on you think please continue to rate review subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and we can't wait to see you guys next week